In this next component of Lecture 9, we are going to talk about Métis and Métis rights. And at the outset, it's important to identify what I refer to when I say Métis. And as I've mentioned in the class previously, my use of the term Métis has been consistent with uh, how the Supreme Court of Canada articulated who are Métis in a case called Pauli, which we'll get to in a second. And the court in Pauli says, the term Métis in section 35, so tying it to section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982, does not encompass all individuals with mixed Indian and European heritage. Rather, it refers to distinctive peoples who, in addition to their mixed ancestry, develop their own customs, way of life, and recognizable group identity separate from their Indian or Inuit and European forebearers. Métis communities evolved and flourished prior to the entrenchment of European control, when the influence of European settlers and political institutions became preeminent. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples describes this evolution as follows. And the court goes on to quote from the Royal Commission, who say, Intermarriage between First Nations and Inuit women and European fur traders and fishermen produced children, but the birth of new Aboriginal cultures took longer. At first, the children of mixed unions were brought up in the traditions of their mothers, or less often their fathers. Gradually, however, distinct Métis cultures emerged, combining European and First Nations or Inuit heritages in unique ways. Economics played a major role in this process. The special qualities and skills of the Métis population made them indispensable members of Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal economic partnerships, and that association contributed to the shaping of their cultures. As interpreters, diplomats, guides, couriers, freighters, traders, and suppliers, the early Métis people contributed massively to European penetration of North America. So this is the understanding of Métis that I have articulated in this class, that it's not simply that someone has a mixed First Nations and non-First Nations heritage, but rather it refers to this distinct culture and society that grew up before Canada became a country, long before Canada became a country, and played this unique role in the history of Canada and in the increasing presence of European settlers. However, there are people who would disagree with that. And there are people who would say that Métis just means mixed and there's no need to draw a connection back to this earlier culture. And it's ultimately, of course, not for me to say who is Métis, what groups ought to be able to claim the title of Métis. However, I think it's important to recognize the, this, the debate that's happening. And to allow that debate to be more fully spelled out, I'm going to play a fairly lengthy clip from a recent CBC program, which offers two competing articulations of what it means to be Métis and who can claim to be Métis. In the clip I'm going to play, you'll hear from Will Goudon 
of the Manitoba Métis Federation. He'll be the male voice that you'll hear. And he'll explain his position that to be Métis, you must be able to trace your history to the historical Métis communities, sort of consistent with the quote from Pauli that I just alluded to. And the Manitoba Métis Federation, of which Mr. Goudon is a executive, was the plaintiff in the second case we'll talk about, the Manitoba Métis case. The female voice you'll hear, on the other hand, is Mary Lou Parker, who's an executive with the Eastern Woodland Métis Nation of Nova Scotia, which has not been recognized by the Supreme Court of Canada as a Métis rights-holding group, and she articulates a much broader conception of who can be Métis. And so I think the dynamic and the difficulties around the definition of who is Métis are well illustrated in this clip. People have to understand the true meaning of a Métis, which is a person of mixed identity. Not just two, could be three or four, but it's a person of mixed identity. They look at their family tree and say, oh, we've got some ancestry. Now I'm Métis. Uh, be who you are. Don't be us. And I think that's what we're trying to say. The 2016 census revealed that in some parts of eastern Canada, the number of people who self-identified as Métis jumped by over 140%. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled on two cases that attempt to determine who is Métis, but it's a complicated question. In 2003, the court ruled that Métis hunting rights are equal to the rights of other Indigenous peoples, but the court needed to identify exactly who would be entitled to those rights. So, the Pauli test was created to determine that. Among other things, the test requires an individual to be a member of a current Métis community and be able to prove an ancestral connection. Thirteen years later, in a different case, the court ruled that the federal government, not provincial governments, are responsible for laws affecting the rights of Métis peoples. But the court didn't specifically define who was considered to be Métis. There is yet to be a court case that affirms the rights of any Métis organization other than those that come from the Red River region in Manitoba. Some say the lack of clarity on who exactly is Métis has created a misconception about who is entitled to Métis rights. Being Métis means that you are a part of that distinct nation, that distinct people. Um, I think there's a move away from, again, from the understanding that we're Métis because we're mixed. If there is someone um, in Nova Scotia with mixed ancestry, who is it for me to say who they are? I can say who I am, and I can probably say that they're not us, um, which is where the whole uh, disagreement comes in. You know something? I could care less. I know what I'm doing in my heart. I know what I'm doing is right for my people, and I'm going to continue to do it. Laugh your heart out. I'm here. I'm staying. The Manitoba Métis Federation is recognized by Canada as an official Indigenous government. It represents up to 35,000 Métis people. The Eastern Woodland Métis Nation of Nova Scotia is not recognized by any government. Parker says it represents over 70,000 self-identifying Métis people. What criteria does the MMF use to define its membership? You have to self-identify, which is 
the fairly easy part of it. Um, you have to have a uh, connection to the historic Métis Nation um, and you have to be accepted by the contemporary uh, his, um, uh, Métis Nation. You must prove to us that you have native heritage from Nova Scotia, from the Mi'kmaq, Mi'kmaq people. Uh, you, and it has to be at least, well, we don't put the generations. As long as you get a drop of Indian blood in you, you're, you're mateys. Is there a cutoff point for how many generations back? No. It's not fair. You are who you are. At what point would, would an applicant get denied membership? Um, well, if you, if you were unable to prove your, your connection to the historic Métis Nation, then that would be uh, a reason to deny. Oh, if you go too far back, I mean... We, we, we just study... Uh, actually, I don't think, because I don't think we've ever denied anybody. Uh, I don't know how, how I'd go about answering that question. But you don't think that you've denied anybody entrance to... I, I don't think we've... Uh, no. I don't think so. There's a pretty big problem out there with, with what they're doing. And, and again, I, I, I'm careful, but there's some, there's some pretty big issues that they've got. They look at their family tree and say, oh, we've got some ancestry. Now I'm Métis. Now I can hunt just like these other people and I'm going to start my own nation. If they are able to use that word Métis, um, then, then I think it calls into question uh, our own nationhood, our own peoplehood. I want recognition for my people. God, I've been in this business for, since 1973. I should know something. But the further, the further ahead I walk, the further I go back. Two steps ahead and three steps back. So. And it's pissing me off. I want people to understand that we are different from the, from the norm, yet we are the same. Okay, we're only different because of our culture. We can't practice our culture because we've been put into the white man's culture. They would never let us practice our culture. I'm only a simple woman. That's all, that's all I am. I don't know how to go about all this to develop a community. Um, I don't know if we'd be accepted, but to heck with that. If we develop a community, that, that's it. I'm not saying that we don't need to have a conversation with those people who, are, uh, who live in Quebec and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. I'm saying we don't, I don't think we need to be scared of that conversation, but we just, we need to be able to uh, say what we say. And, and I think the facts speak for themselves uh, more than anything. So you get in that clip the dynamic and some of the difficulties. You get the idea that, on the one hand, how can somebody in Manitoba tell a group in New Brunswick that they're not Métis, that they can't identify with the First Nations culture and describe and advocate for recognition of a Aboriginal culture? On the other hand, the groups with these ties to the historic Métis populations have worked very hard to advocate for their rights, to press cases, to have their hunting rights recognized in the same manner as the rights of other First Nations or other Aboriginal groups, I should say. And if anybody who can trace any part of their ancestry to any First Nation group 
can claim to be Métis, this very well may have the effect of watering down the rights which are constitutionally recognized. Um, if a huge percentage of the population can claim to be Métis, then the specific rights and the specific culture of the historical Métis group that does have a continuity to the present Métis organizations like the Manitoba Métis Federation, that unique culture may ultimately find itself less well protected. And furthermore, if a vast swath of people are claiming Métis hunting rights, there could be a backlash against anyone claiming Métis rights, even a group that has a strong and consistent Métis identity that can trace itself back many years. So that's the dynamic and the difficulty around the question of who is Métis. And so in the Pauli case, we are going to look at two questions. And the one is, how do you modify the Aboriginal rights framework to take into account the Métis situation, and specifically the fact that obviously a pre-contact test will simply not work? The second question is, how do you go about assessing whether somebody can claim a Métis right? How do you go about assessing if somebody's a member of a rights-holding community? such that they can assert a constitutionally protected Section 35 right. So these are the two big questions that are tackled in the Pauli case. So the Pauli case was concerned with a hunting rights issue. Mr. Pauli was charged with unlawfully hunting a moose in the Sault Ste. Marie area of Ontario and was charged under Ontario's Game and Fish Act. And Mr. Pauli pled not guilty on the basis that he was a Métis, and in Sault Ste. Marie, he had an Aboriginal right, a Métis right, protected under Section 35 of the Constitution Act 1982. He had a constitutionally protected Métis right to hunt for food. And so the issue comes before the Supreme Court of Canada. Are Métis protected by Section 35? And the court says, yes. It's plain, it's in the text of the Constitution. Aboriginal peoples of Canada is defined as including the Inuit, Inuit, and Métis peoples of Canada. So then the court says, in an issue that several students have anticipated, well, how is that going to work with a contact test for Aboriginal rights? In Vanderpeet, the court held that the practices that constitute Aboriginal rights are those that have continuity with practices that existed prior to contact with European settlers. Would that make sense for Métis? Absolutely not. And so the court says, look, we need to think about why are Métis included in Section 35? And it's not about pre-contact occupation of Canadian territory because the Métis as a distinct Aboriginal group did not exist at that time. But rather, the court says, including Métis in Section 35 represents Canada's commitment to value distinctive Métis cultures. These cultures which emerged between the time of first contact and effective imposition of European control. So that's the relevant time between contact and effective imposition of European control. This very much is consistent with the articulation of Métis identity 
put forward by the representative of Manitoba Métis Federation in the clip played earlier and is less consistent with the articulation put forward by the New Brunswick Métis group. But this is a big point. You want to think for Métis rights, you're modifying the Vanderpeet test and you're substituting contact for the date when the right needs to arise to the date of effective European control. When is the date of effective European control? Well, it varies for the part of Canada that we're talking about. In the area at issue in Pauli, the Sault Ste. Marie area, it is around 1850. But that is then the first main takeaway from Pauli, use the date of effective European control as opposed to contact for establishing Métis rights. The second thing that Pauli does, though, is set out a detailed step-by-step framework for assessing a claim of Métis rights and infringement of Métis rights. And this, while not every step is necessary for assessing a Aboriginal rights claim, the order and the considerations have much overlap with the Aboriginal rights context, and therefore it's a rather useful framework to go through in some detail. And the court says, step one, characterize the right being claimed in a contextual and site-specific way. And that's akin to the Vanderpeet approach. Again, under an Aboriginal rights framework, you also have to characterize the right that is being claimed. So in this case, the right is a right to hunt for food near Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario that is being claimed. The second step is to identify the historic rights-bearing community. Now, of course, these rights are similarly communal rights. And so you need to identify what's the historic community you're saying exercised this right. And in the Pauli case, the court said the evidence shows there was a distinctive Métis community formed in the mid-17th century near a French trading post in this area. So that's the second step. The third step is to identify the contemporary rights-bearing community. And this is an important thing, again, because these rights are going to be held communally. And so therefore, it's important to identify what's the group who are going to be holding these rights in modern times. You, know, you need a group to hold the communal right. And in this case, the trial judge found that there is a contemporary group that's the contemporary successor to the Métis near Sault Ste. Marie. And the court also wants to show some continuity between the original group and the modern group. And they find that while this group went underground for a while and didn't assert a group identity as such, it never died off. The next step is to verify that the claimant is a member of the contemporary community. This is step four. And the claimant has to self-identify as a Métis and must also present evidence of an ancestral connection to a historic Métis community. There's no question in this case that the Mr. Pauli satisfied both of those criteria. Next, the court demands that you identify the relevant time frame look at the time between when the particular Métis group arose and the date of effective European control. This is the relevant period for seeing 
what the rights and practices are that are going to get this constitutional protection. And in this case, European control was in 1850, so the relevant time is just before that. It's the practices at the time of effective European control that matter. The next step, familiar from Vanderpeet, is to determine whether the practice at issue is integral to the claimant's distinctive culture. And the evidence in the Pauli case showed that hunting for food to survive was a defining feature of the Métis specials the Métis' special relationship to the land in the area. And then there needs to be a continuity analysis. Is there continuity between the historic practice and the contemporary right asserted? And again, just like in the Aboriginal rights context, there has to be some flexibility to allow practices to evolve over time. But in this case, the court said, indeed, hunting for food is important to the Sault Ste. Marie Métis community and has been continuously until the present. The next step is to determine whether the right was extinguished. And we talked a bit about the idea that Parliament could, until the constitutionalization of Aboriginal rights in 1982, unilaterally extinguish a right. Well, in this case, there is no evidence of extinguishment. Step nine is to determine whether there has been an infringement and in Ontario, there was no recognition of a Métis right to, to hunt for food at all. So there was a clear infringement because there was no accommodation being made. And finally, the court asks for a justification analysis. And the court says the justification offered was deficient. The purported justification was to preserve the health of the moose population, but there is a failure to lead evidence that the moose population was under threat. And of course, remember, when we're into justification, we are into a framework where the crown bears the burden and must lead evidence. So there was an infringement in this case that was not justified. So I'm going to go through those factors one more time. There's 10 steps to this analysis, but it does provide a clear framework for approaching these questions, at least insofar as it sets out a step-by-step -step analysis, even if many of the details of the steps are a bit unclear and are being left to be filled out in greater detail in cases where there's perhaps more controversy over the individual claimant's ability to meet the criteria that are set out in the Pauli test. So step one, characterize the right in a contextual and site-specific way. Step two, identify the historic rights-bearing community. Step three, identify the contemporary rights-bearing community. Step four, verify that the claimant is a member of the contemporary community. Step five, identify the relevant time frame, that is the time frame immediately before effective European control. Step six, determine whether the practice at issue is integral to the claimant's distinctive culture. Step seven, determine whether there is continuity between the historic practice and contemporary right asserted, giving a margin of flexibility to allow practices to evolve over time. Step eight, determine if the right was, was extinguished. Step nine, determine whether there has been infringement. And finally, step 10, determine whether the infringement is justified. So that broadly is the Pauli framework. The big takeaways you want to have are the Supreme Court of Canada's articulation of 
who is Métis and think about how that um, perhaps conflicts with some of the other articulations of Métis identity and think about what the relevant date for Métis rights is and how it has to be something other than contact and how it is the time before effective assertion of European control and how that will vary from place to place. And then know this framework that is followed in order to tell if somebody is a member of a Métis community that holds a right that is constitutionally protected and then how to determine if that right has been infringed and if that infringement is justified. So Pauli is a quite useful case, um, written quite well for practical purposes, for practical application. However, as we heard in that clip, the specific details of who is Métis, Métis identity, are still being worked out to a great extent, and I suspect we will see more litigation which will raise this question of whether a group like the Nova Scotia, or sorry, New Brunswick, Métis Association discussed in that clip, whether that could be a constitutional right-holding group or whether it's too diffuse and fails to tie any right claimed to a specific pre-European control distinctive culture. Yeah, I think that the Pauli framework would have to change considerably, but but who knows? Um, so the second case on Métis that I want to talk about is the Manitoba Métis case. This is a fascinating case. Um, it provides an excellent summary on the principles of the honor of the crown and, and what the honor of the crown is and what it does. It's historically you know, a, a wonderful tale, as it were, that is told in this case. And it provides more light on Métis history. So broadly speaking, this case goes through the history of Manitoba. So you have Confederation in 1867, and then you have the federal government in Ottawa saying, we want to bring the Western territories into Canada. We want to bring them into the boundaries of Canada, open up the Western territories for settlement. And one of these Western territories is now Manitoba. There was, however, opposition to this plan, the plan to bring this area into Canada and specifically, the French-speaking Roman Catholic Métis at a place which is now Winnipeg, the Red River Settlement, they resisted. They resisted being brought into Canada. There was not fighting, but arms were, were shown. And Canada came and said, we will bring you into Canada, but on conditions. And these conditions were set out in the Manitoba Act. And these conditions included that Canada agreed to grant 1.4 million acres of land to Métis children and to recognize existing land holdings. Both of these promises were set out in the Manitoba Act, the act which brings the province of Manitoba into confederation. And the Manitoba Act is a part of the Constitution. Remember we talked about how there's a schedule to the Constitution Act 1982 that lists certain other pieces of legislation that are a part of the Constitution, and the Manitoba Act is one of those listed pieces of legislation. So what you had next 
was a bit of a race where there was settlers coming into this area at a very quick clip. And there was this obligation to distribute a whole lot of land to the Métis children. The idea was to give the Métis children a head start, a foothold in the area. What happened in practice was that there was a series of delays, mismanagement, mistakes that were made, and this substantially frustrated much of the purpose of this benefit to the Métis children. And the court describes what they're talking about. They're saying this wasn't just a little bit of government mismanagement. This was repeated mistakes and inaction that persisted for more than a decade. And so this case comes before the Supreme Court of Canada. And the, the claimants say there's, there's a breach of fiduciary duty here. They say this is akin to the golf course in Garin, in a sense, that there's the crown taking discretionary control over an interest in land held by an Aboriginal group, and in discharging its obligations with respect to that land and with respect to that Aboriginal group, there's a duty to act as a fiduciary, to act in the best interests of the beneficiary of the Aboriginal group. And the court says... No. They say, what you have to recognize with Métis is that while Métis had a distinctive culture, they didn't have a uniquely Aboriginal system of land holding. The land system for Métis was based off a European model. People owned land and, and that was that. So the way that title was held was not a distinctive Métis interest. This was not an aboriginal interest in land that gives rise to a fiduciary obligation in the circumstances. And the most fundamental problem is that you don't have a communal interest in land. And because aboriginal rights have been described and defined as communal rights, you can't have an aboriginal right established here. And without the aboriginal right in the crown's discretionary control, not just an Aboriginal right, but an Aboriginal title, without a communally held right or title claim, you don't get into the framework where you have a fiduciary duty. So this sounds not promising for the Manitoba Métis. But the court says, hold on, the fiduciary obligation we've talked about in Guerin, where the Crown assumes discretionary control over an Aboriginal interest in land, and then has to discharge its obligations and duties in relation to that interest in land with the care owed by a fiduciary. That idea from Guerin about a fiduciary obligation, well, that stems from the honor of the crown. The honor of the crown is the source of the fiduciary obligation. The honor of the crown is also the source of the duty to consult. The honor of the crown is this core precept that finds specific applications and creates specific duties in different circumstances. So the court goes through and says, we are going to consider whether despite there not being a fiduciary obligation, because there wasn't a fiduciary relationship based on the crown taking discretionary control, over an Aboriginal interest in land, 
Despite that, was there nevertheless a duty arising from the honor of the crown that applied in the circumstances? And the court gives a good explanation of the honor of the crown at paragraph 66 and says, The honor of the crown arises from the crown's assertion of sovereignty over an aboriginal people and de facto control of land and resources that were formerly in the control of that people. In Aboriginal law, the honor of the crown goes back to the Royal Proclamation of 1763, which made reference to the several nations or tribes of Indians with whom we are connected and who live under our protection. This protection, though, did not arise from a paternalistic desire to protect the Aboriginal peoples. Rather, it was a recognition of their strength. Nor is the honor of the crown a paternalistic concept. And they quote the comments of Brian Slattery, a leading thinker on Aboriginal rights and title issues. And Professor Slattery says, The sources of the general fiduciary duty do not lie, then, in a paternalistic concern to protect a weaker or more primitive people, as has sometimes been suggested, but rather in the necessity of persuading native peoples, at a time when they still had considerable military capacities, that their rights would be better protected by reliance on the crown than by self-help. And so the court goes on to say, look, the ultimate purpose of the honor of the crown is the reconciliation of pre-existing Aboriginal societies with the assertion of crown sovereignty. So again, we always think about what are they saying when they say reconciliation? Well, here it's reconciliation in the first sense. It's reconciling the legal fact of assertion of sovereignty with the pre-existence of Aboriginal societies. And the court says, well, when is the honor of the crown going to be engaged? And the court says, well, in a number of circumstances, but it includes when a solemn promise is made to an Aboriginal group and an Aboriginal group specifically. So a treaty right is a solemn promise made by the crown to an Aboriginal group. And the court says, so too is a promise made in the Constitution. And if you remember, the Manitoba Act, which sets out this promise that this 1.4 million acres will be distributed amongst the Métis children, that is a part of the Constitution. So the court says, this solemn promise triggers the honor of the crown and must be interpreted and applied in a manner that preserves that honor of the crown. And so then the court says, well, when the honor of the crown is triggered, for example, when you're dealing with a Aboriginal rights and title claim, a treaty claim, or a solemn promise set out in the Constitution, well, what does the honor of the crown require? What does the honor of the crown entail? And the court says, well, the honor of the crown gives rise to a fiduciary duty when the crown assumes discretionary control over a specific Aboriginal interest. This is what happens in Garen. And this is what the court said doesn't arise in this case because this interest in land, this 1.4 million acres, wasn't a specific Aboriginal interest in land so as to give rise to a fiduciary duty. The court says, second, the honor of the crown informs the purposive interpretation of Section 35 of the Constitution Act and gives rise to a duty to consult when the crown contemplates an action that will affect a claimed but as yet unproven Aboriginal interest. The honor of the crown governs treaty making and implementation. That's the third 
application of the honor of the crown, which leads to requirements such as honorable negotiation and the avoidance of the appearance of sharp dealing. Then the court says the honor of the crown requires the crown to act in a way that accomplishes the intended purposes of treaties and statutory grants. And the court says, well, with regard to these established and accepted specific duties which flow out of the honor of the crown, from that, we can articulate another obligation that flows from the honor of the crown. And that is when the issue is the implementation of a constitutional obligation to an Aboriginal people, the honor of the crown requires that the crown take a broad purposive approach to the interpretation of the promise and acts diligently to fulfill it. So interpret it in a broad and purposive way and diligently act to fulfill the promise. Don't just sit on your hands and fail to act on the promise. So you can sort of think of this is a duty placed on the executive by the honor of the crown to act in a way that will accomplish the intended purpose of this most profound promise that is included in the constitution, you know, the highest form of of legislation. And in describing this duty, the court says, Crown servants must seek to perform the obligation in a way that pursues the purpose behind the promise. The Aboriginal group must not be left with an empty shell of a treaty promise. And the court says, look, not every mistake or negligent act even in implementing a constitutional obligation brings dishonor to the Crown. People make mistakes. However, a persistent pattern of errors and indifference that substantially frustrates the purposes of a solemn promise may amount to a betrayal of the Crown's duty to act honorably in fulfilling its promise. Nor does the honor of the Crown constitute a guarantee that the purposes of the promise will be achieved as circumstances and events may prevent fulfillment despite the Crown's diligent efforts. So it's not a promise that you're, or it's not a guarantee that your promise is going to be fulfilled but it is a requirement that the crown try. It diligently try. And it can make mistakes, it could even be negligent, but you can't be persistently indifferent and uh, have a persistent pattern of errors that substantially frustrates the purpose of a promise. And in this case, to the Métis children, the court says there was not diligent fulfillment of this promise. And the purpose of the promise of providing the Métis children a leg up, a foothold in Manitoba, was substantially frustrated. So with the Manitoba Métis case, it is fascinating from the historical story that is told and is very interesting in how the court got to a remedy despite finding that there wasn't an Aboriginal interest in land because there wasn't a communal interest in land at stake and said instead it's the solemn promise from the Constitution, enshrined in the Constitution, that gives rise to this honor of the crown, that gives rise to this duty of diligent fulfillment of constitutional promises. This case was quite controversial, and there's a scathing dissent written by Justice Rothstein that really takes issue with what the majority did. Um, But there are also some people who have defended this this case as a appropriate and incremental step. Like totally full disclosure, I did work on this case when I was working at the Supreme Court of Canada, so my 
views on the case are not entirely neutral, but I think it's a, I still think it's a very important case. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to comment on the dissent in a negative way or anything like that. Um, so what you want to take away from this case, though, is not strictly just that the narrow Métis rights issue, but what's really important is the framing of the honor of the crown. You want to think of what is the honor of the crown? It's this core precept. It doesn't come from a paternalistic view that Aboriginal groups needed protection. To the contrary, it recognizes that Aboriginal groups were strong and Canada needed their cooperation. And so it made promises to these groups and it made commitments to these groups and it needs to fulfill those commitments. That's the basis for it. So you think of the honor of the crown infusing Aboriginal and crown relations at the highest level and giving rise to specific duties in specific circumstances, including the fiduciary relationship in appropriate circumstances, including the duty to consult, including duties in relation to the interpretation and application of treaties, and including this duty of diligent fulfillment of solemn constitutional promises. So that's going to conclude our talk on Métis rights and issues. And in the final part of this lecture, and indeed the final lecture component of this course, I'm going to speak a little bit about the intersection of charter and Aboriginal rights, looking at the Tunaha case.